Good morning, friends. On a day that's full of prophets, Isaiah, Zephaniah, and John, and I imagine that if we took a survey around the room and asked what is a prophet, we would probably get some pretty similar answers. Imagine a prophet in your mind. Just take a few seconds. Imagine that person. Perhaps they're a little bit writhe, maybe strangely dressed. They're probably yelling all sorts of things. A little bit scary, a little bit obnoxious. Yes, this is the popular image of the prophets that we hold. So keep that image in your mind. And now let's listen to some of the words. First, Isaiah. Remember that these words were spoken before the Assyrian conquest of Israel and Judah when the swords of war were already rattling in neighboring countries. But this is what Isaiah says. I will give thanks, I will trust. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, sing praise. Okay, second, Zephaniah. Centuries later than Isaiah, now writing also during a global buildup towards war that will eventually colonize and exile this people, taking them away from all the familiar markers of how to practice their faith and live together as God's people. But as those clouds are gathering, Zephaniah writes, Rejoice, exult with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. God will renew you in love. God will exult over you with loud singing as on the day of a festival. That's two out of three. Now, John. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Even now, the axe is lying at the foot of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, every family has that cousin. (laughs) See, you know who I'm talking about, right? We prepare the feast, we make the place nice, we prepare our minds and our hearts for positive, faithful, upbuilding fellowship around the season, and that cousin shows up. Well, here in the midst of our preparations for the advent of Christ, this is Jesus's cousin. And we picture John screaming at these crowds of curious listeners and onlookers, repent. And after these hard words, Luke says, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Good news. Okay, let's go find that good news in today's text. Repent has taken on a certain spiritual significance, but it really just means to turn around, to turn around from one thing to something else. Now, I've had many moments of repentance in my life, and one of those is a turning in my vocation. When I first studied in university, it was to become a biologist. So hearing John talk about a brood of vipers is actually interesting to me for a lot of other reasons. (laughs) Not to mention because I grew up in a place where broods of vipers are actually fairly common and you need to know something about them when you're out camping 
in the mountains. But part of my studies was in behavioral ecology. And one of those studies focused on the behavior of sea turtles. So rather than focus on John's behavior this morning, I want to focus on the behavior of sea turtles. My home state of North Carolina has this outer ring of barrier islands, the outer banks that stick way out into the Atlantic Ocean, and it intercepts the Gulf Stream current that current where sea turtles and other sea creatures spend their life circumnavigating the oceans. And those outer banks provide an accessible sanctuary for sea turtles to stop off and to lay their eggs. And every year at the same time, these turtles come ashore, often back to the very same beach where they hatched. It's remarkable. They come ashore and they lay their eggs in these large clutches in the sand. Now the fish and wildlife authorities go out and they prepare those nests so that they won't be dug up or harmed. They safeguard them so they won't be scavenged by animals in order to protect the population. And when the time comes in that season, you can go out on the beach late at night and you can watch these baby turtles hatch. And it's a beautiful and fascinating thing to watch. Hundreds of babies wriggling up through the sand to poke their heads and their fins out into the world for the first time. Now in North Carolina, as in other protected places of hatching on West Africa as well, on the other side of that current, um, there are ordinances that if you go out to watch them hatch, you can only take red lights and the street lights on the streets and the houses on the shore side and all the signs that are there must be tinted yellow. And the point is that the lights on the shore should not be white lights. And the reason for this is so that there's a difference between those yellow lights on the, on the land and the white light of the moon and the stars that reflects off the ocean water at night. Because sea turtles have an actual affinity to follow white light. And the sea turtles do an amazing thing. When they hatch, they wriggle up out of the sand. And when they do, they're turned all sorts of directions. Some of them are happily facing the ocean, but some are facing the land, some are facing down the beach, and some are there flopping on their backs like, um, well, like a turtle. <laughs> and they just sit there for a second to adjust their eyes to the lights of the world. And this is the moment. It's too brief to call it a season, but it's a special time. It's a pregnant pause, and you can watch this miracle because they're looking for the light. But which one? And then they turn around, and they face the direction of the moonlight and the stars shining off the ocean, and off they go. This is amazing because if sea turtles turn to the light on the land towards the houses 
they're just not going to make it. They'll end up on the road, they'll be picked up by gulls, or they'll dehydrate. But they won't live because they won't make it to the waters. Their repentance leads to life. Away from those human-made substitutes, those tented lights that are designed to attract and allure, but really are only light pollution, turning towards that pure, natural, cosmic light that leads to life. Now, the difficult part of watching this miracle of these babies hatching is that too many just don't make it. Because these turtles lay hundreds of eggs and many more eggs than are necessary to preserve the population because some won't hatch. And despite your best efforts to build these little sand berms to guide them to the ocean, many of them will not make it to the water. And as hard as it is, if you see one of these little turtles going in the wrong direction, it's actually against the law for you to touch that turtle. And for many biological reasons, having to do with imprinting, having to do with bacteria on your hands and all sorts. But the point is, you can't redirect it. You can't take it to the water. You can build little walls of sand like signs pointing the way in the desert. You can stand there like a crazy prophet and yell, repent, little turtle, repent. But you can't save that turtle. And it's heartbreaking because you can see the path that leads to life. I understand John, and I think you do too. Because friends, despite our popular impression of a prophet, what is distinctive about a prophet is not what they say, but what they see. Prophets have received the word, and then they look out and they read the world. And after wrestling mightily with seeing the consequences of our injustices, they have to speak, they're compelled to speak this hard word to those lights that would allure us and those discourses that would desiccate the greenness of our lives. But this is where the good news is. They do that because what they've received is a word of promise. This hope is actually the source of the prophet's anger and their courage. The differences that we see between that promise of peace that's out there and the injustice that we see here and now, that gap is the source of their righteous anger and it's the source of their courage to speak a transformative word that moves us towards that vision of what is already there. That promise is the reason that hard words for hard times are also accompanied with those words of gentleness and tenderness and peace and joy that we heard this morning in Isaiah and Zephaniah. Because friends, all of this, whatever this is for you right now in life, all of this that's going on is happening within a bigger horizon of hope that those who have received this word can still see. 
It's what Paul says so simply and so profoundly that I commend these four words to you from all of our readings this morning to keep in your heart. The Lord is near. This is the gospel that John sees and is pointing us to, the nearness of God, that word that's as close to you now as your breath. So in the case of sea turtles, you have to allow nature to run its course. But it's not so with God. God brings the light to us, submerges us in the waters of life, and gives us eyes of faith to see in the darkness. And yes, sometimes it's really dark. And sometimes there are other lights, other lamps that people light that promise so much, and they really look like convincing substitutes, that they even look like fine paths to progress and purpose. But this word made flesh, this life is the light of all creation. So Advent is a season. It's a brief pause, just enough time to blink your eyes, to adjust your eyes to that darkness, and to focus on the good news that unlike the prophets who waited in days of old, during our Advent today, we aren't waiting for a word because the word has come to dwell in each one of us. The Lord is near. So look around again. Do you see it? Now swim. Amen.